0: everyone, and a good morning to our friends who are watching us from home, as well as our friends on the bridge. I would say give us a shout out, but we can't hear you because of the double glass that we have here. But I got to tell you guys, I went up there this morning just to kind of greet everyone who's hanging out on the bridge, and I s- sat down there, we got the heat lamps, got a big widescreen TV, that water bottle, so I was like, well, this is real, I wouldn't mind doing service right from here, so if you would like, they have the Saddleback mounds, beautiful view, so if you'd like to go out there, you just got to have a mask on, socially distanced, but it's, a, it's, it's one of the best seats in the house right now, so, um, also, the trivia thing. So this is something that Ryan, since COVID happened, Ryan day, You got many of you know Ryan. He he's just this kind of guy. So when COVID happened, he just started doing a trivia night, inviting anyone to it, friends, family, that kind of thing. And he's been doing it for about six months now. And Lori and I jumped in a couple times, and it's a lot of fun. And so we talked to Ryan and said, Ryan, would you do one specially for the people of Christ Community Church? And so just to let you know, this isn't like a real spiritual event, okay? It's just people getting together, having fun, hanging out on Zoom, and it's not a bunch of theology questions, Although, that would actually be a good way to test the knowledge of our people. So maybe we need to think about it. But it's going to be pop culture, sports. It's a good time of just connecting. And that starts this Wednesday, right, the 16th. So if any of you have not already jumped in and did one of those, Ryan does a great job. And you get to connect with a lot of people. And like I said, it is a lot of fun. I think there's even prizes involved because Ryan really does it well. So, uh, that's going to be this Wednesday at 8 o'clock on Zoom. Check Realm for the, the, the post or the, the code. Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 3. While you're opening up, I um, just want to let you know this is about the halfway point in our Advent series, uh, Pictures of God's Love. We've been talking for uh, the last three weeks, looking at pictures. Though the way Bible the Bible presents the way God has loved us so well. As a matter of fact, um, you can see on our slides. Those are the six pictures we've been looking at. We've been looking at God as our reconciler, God as our redeemer, God uh, Christ as our legal substitute, uh, our Victor, our Second Adam and sacrifice. So we are talking about today Christ as our legal substitute. Next week we're going to look at Christ as our Victor. This is a word we don't say too much in the church anymore, but there was a phrase, some of you may recognize it, Christus victor, right? Christus victus, Christ the victor. So that's going to be next week at our uh, Christmas Eve service. We'll be looking at Christ as our second Adam. It'll be a little bit shorter, and then after Christmas, we're going to be looking at Christ as our perfect sacrifice. Now, Probably important to note, it's important to realize, these are not six different realities or six different pictures describing six different realities. These are six different pictures describing the one same reality, which naturally leads to the question, well then, that seems unnecessarily confusing. Why would you use six pictures to describe one thing? Well, the reason the Bible does that is because the Bible wants to communicate that God's salvation is absolutely comprehensive. And so the Bible presents as many pictures to show how God brings his salvation as there are many ways that the world is wrong today. If salvation simply means to us that ah, that's, that's how you get to heaven, right? If, if that's what people think salvation is, so if you are a Christian and you talk about salvation to people, if all they think it is is that's how you get to heaven, then it shouldn't be surprising why many people may think in the world today that the message of Christianity is irrelevant, Right? If, if that's all it is, is how I get to heaven, well, then I don't got to worry about that because I've got 30, 40, 50, 60 years left of life at least to worry about those things. Yeah, sure, Christianity, the gospel, might have been appealing in the Middle Ages when, when all of life could be described in three words, short, brutal, and dirty. But I mean, life is so good now, right? We got things like smartphones, we have electric cars, we got Instagram, we got DoorDash, Any one of us here can have Taco Bell delivered to your house without even leaving the couch, right? I can get Starbucks delivered to me while I'm preaching all from this phone. So who talks about heaven anymore? Life is just so good, right? You can see why if people think salvation just means heaven in our world, in our time, that can seem irrelevant. Who needs that? Maybe when I'm at death's door, I'll think about it. But you see, historically, Christians have never spoken of salvation as just, this is how we get to heaven. Historically, Christians have believed that the gospel, the message that we're talking about, is the message, is the hope of this world to fix all that is wrong with it. Now, that's a pretty big statement. Because you look around the world, it's pretty, it's pretty broken, isn't it? Emotionally, relationally, so- socially spiritually. It's a wreck. We are in a big mess. And our problem isn't one of politics, economics, or education. So, the solution's not going to come from politicians. It's not going to come from having more money. It's not going to come from schooling. And although I want to be real clear, that's, that contributes to it, right? Some of our issues are political. Many of our issues are economic. Some of our issues are we don't know the things we need to know, but those are just kind of the, the results or the, the, they, they, they influence the problem. They don't actually determine the problem. The Bible, in fact, says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, he's referring to Adam there, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. The Bible teaches that the problem that is at the root of all other problems, the problem beneath the problems, is called sin. Sin has what is what has brought this disruption, this discord, this disorder to our world. Sin has broken our relationships. Sin has created slaves of us. Sin condemns us for the things we do wrong. Sin is a foe that we cannot defeat. Sin brings chaos and disorder wherever it goes, and sin has stained all of us. More importantly, though, that you can acknowledge those things, more importantly is the fact is we feel that. Even if you're not a Christian, you will feel the results of sin. Sin. And we see it all over our world, a sense of alienation, a sense of isolation, a sense of not well, not doing well, aimlessness, hopelessness, meaninglessness. Listen to what uh, Albert Camus, he's one of the, if you went to college and studied philosophy or psychology, you surely read this guy, Um, one of the most influential French existentialist philosophers, I have seen many people die because life for them was not worth living. From this, I conclude that the question of life's meaning is the most urgent question of all. Carl Jung, another well-known psychologist, said this, A third of my cases are not suffering from any clinical, definable neuroses, but from the senselessness and aimlessness of their lives. Well, what are they talking about? They're talking about the feeling that sin has brought to us. We are just not right, and we feel it. Now, you may not be able to articulate it and say, well, that's what's going on. I'm, I'm, I'm broken. Sin's made a slave of me. It's a foe I can't defeat. It's disorder and chaos. They may not articulate it that way, but they feel it. And here we have two people who, who just work with people all the time, not coming from a Christian perspective saying, look, the most of the people I work with they're falling apart, not because of any definable reality, but just at the core, things are not sticking. It's not working. Now, for sure, this doesn't define life for everyone 24-7, right? Absolutely. Life is full of joy, full of happiness, full of achievement, accomplishment, full of connectedness, pleasures, but that is fragile, isn't it? And even if you get it, it is momentary. Even if it may feel like a long time, it does pass. And joy and happiness and achievement and success, that is elusive for some, right? And for those that can attain it, it's fleeting, right? James chapter 4, verse 14 says, your life is a mist. Job 7, 7 says, life is a breath. The average healthy individual takes 16 breaths a minute. I'm I'm sure Job wasn't thinking that, but Job says your life is a breath, one-sixteenth of a minute. So because we are in such a mess, the Bible describes the reality of salvation in such massive ways. So, if we feel alienated and our relationships are broken, whether that's our relationship with God vertically, our relationships with one another horizontally, or even just internally, the Bible presents Jesus as our reconciler, the one that brings enemies and makes them friends, the one who brings peace, where there is slavery to sin where we just can't shake something. It seems to dominate our lives and ruin our lives. The Bible pictures Jesus as the great Redeemer, the one who finally and fully sets us free. Where we feel a sense of condemnation or a sense of guilt because of the things we might have done, the Bible presents Jesus as our legal substitute who represents us before God and justifies us where our enemies or our situations seem to overwhelm us and we only look at defeat, the Bible presents Jesus as our victor who wins on our behalf. We feel that the world's out out of control. Everything's going to disorder and there's nothing that can restore and renew it. The Bible presents Jesus as the second Adam who renews and restores the creation itself and our place in it. When we feel dirty, stained, when we feel that we are impure, the Bible presents Jesus as the perfect sacrifice who purifies us and makes us clean and white and whole before God. So the Bible presents salvation in so many different pictures because we are broken in so many different ways. And I can understand why that seems confusing, but I hope you can see now it's pretty comprehensive. And that's why we've been looking at these six pictures of salvation, and the gospel is the answer for all of it. And and really, at Advent and Easter, both those holidays drive us to our very theme this morning, that we have salvation because there has been a substitute. Now, I know you've thought of Jesus in many ways before, right? Um, Savior, King, Redeemer, Friend of Sinners, Lamb of God. But have you ever thought of Jesus as a substitute? More to the point... Have you ever thought of Jesus as your substitute? Right, you guys know what a substitute is, right? You've all had a substitute teacher. The substitute is someone who stands in for someone else. So po- important is the reality of Jesus as our substitute that unless Jesus Christ is your legal substitute, He cannot be our Savior. He cannot be your Savior. Unless Jesus Christ is your legal substitute, Jesus Christ will not be your Redeemer. Unless he is your legal substitute, he cannot be the Lamb of God that takes away your sins. Now you go, well, wait a minute. (laughs) That, That sounds odd. That doesn't sound like what I've always heard in church. Doesn't God just love us all the time? Yes. But we need to balance that out. God is loving, God is compassionate, God is merciful. But God is also just, God is also perfect. God is also holy. God is also pure, pure such that any sin, any imperfection, any impurity cannot stand in His presence, right? 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 calls God the righteous judge. And, and, and Paul's not using the term righteous in that context the way we kind of tend to in Southern California, you tend to use the word righteous, the way we tend to use the word righteous really means neat or cool, right? Like, hey, man, that's righteous, right? I don't, I don't know if anyone talks anymore. surfers talk like that, but that's not what the Bible means by the word righteous. The Bible means by the word righteous according to a standard, upright, not wrong, done correctly, when Paul says God is a righteous judge, what he means by that is He is the right judge that does all things by the standard and does them correctly, and all of humanity stands before His court. You and I, we all stand before His court. We cannot ignore that God is our judge. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, you don't want to ignore that God is in fact a judge. You don't want to ignore that God is in fact a judge. And here is the million dollar question that only Christianity resolves, okay? This is the million dollar question that only Christianity can resolve. Now, I know on our live stream and I don't know everyone here, so I don't know if everyone here's a Christian, but if you're not a Christian, I want you to dial in cuz I want to I want to throw out a proposition to you, a conundrum, a problem, a dilemma that only Christianity can resolve, and here it is. If there is no ultimate judge out there, if there is no ultimate judge, then what hope is there for the world we live in, this world so full of evil and injustice and wrong? If there's no ultimate judge, where's the hope? Here's the problem, though. If there is an ultimate judge, where's the hope for you and I who have done so much wrong? If there's no ultimate judge, where's the hope for the world? If there is an ultimate judge, where's the hope for us? In other words, how can the message of Christianity be truly blessing and not just a a curse? How can the gospel be life-giving blessing and not a curse, given that situation? If there's no judge, then there's no hope for the world because all the injustices, all the evils, all the Hitlers, all the Stalins, they get away with it. But if there is a judge, what hope is there for us? Who, If we're being honest, we have done things we know we shouldn't. And so we are on the horns of of a dilemma. How does Christianity answer that? Christianity has an answer for it. It is called Jesus Christ as our legal substitute. You see, we need someone to represent us in this cosmic court of law before this judge. We need someone who can deal with our guilt... And at the same time, someone who can pronounce us innocent. And only in Christ do we have that hope, because He is the judge who took our judgment. And we're going to look at this in a little bit, and the reason being so that God could be just upholding His holiness, and at the same time justify people who have failed against His holiness. That's the conundrum that only Jesus solves. Now, this is taught all through the New Testament, but we only have time to look at two passages. One's going to be in Romans chapter 3, and the other is going to be found in Galatians chapter 3. So that was basically a really long introduction into the heart of what we're going to be talking about today. So if you ever have your Bible, if you're using a pew Bible, go to page 885. We're going to look at Romans 3, 21 to 26, page 885 in your pew Bibles. Now these two passages, um, we should have enough time to deal with them. They are just packed with good stuff. The focus, really, in Romans 3 is, um, is, is 25 and 26, but I want to give you the context. So, we're going to actually start from verse 21. Here we go, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe… For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, there is a ton of good stuff in here. Number one, it starts with what I call one of those mic drop moments there in verse 21. Paul says. Now keep in mind the audience, guys, keep in mind what's happening here. Christianity is starting to spread like wildfire. It's not just Jews anymore. There are Gentiles in the mix. All kinds of people are part of the church. That was one of the things that was attractive about the church. The world couldn't understand. How do you people have anything in common? Remember, this is what we talked about, the the reconciler. How can you Jews hang out with these Gentiles? You historically have hated each other. How can you Gentiles love these Jews? You have historically hated one another. Not just ethnically, but social, economically, educationally, politically. All kinds of people now in the church. Why? Because they were formerly enemies made friends. Why? Because they were slaves to their sins. Now set free. And so Paul is writing to these people. And they're just, you got to keep in mind, there was no this, right? You didn't have half of this book, right? They didn't have the New Testament. So they're just gobbling up the Old Testament, eating, drinking. I mean, just reading this thing voraciously. And Paul, now you can imagine in the Roman church, it's probably a good mix of Jews and Gentiles. And and many, and by the way, that was what happened in Galatians, right? Many of the Jews were starting to influence the Gentiles with uh, Judaism, and Paul had to correct that. So, Paul writes this in verse 21, but now, and if you you haven't read Romans in a while, you have to read it. You know, verse 2, he's talking about the righteousness and how the Jews have an advantage, but it doesn't really matter salvifically. And then he gets to chapter 3. Verse 21, now the righteousness of God has been manifested, is available, is being made known apart from the law. What in the world, Paul? What are you talking about? Hasn't it always been the case that the law itself, the gift to the Jews, the gift from the Jews to the world was how we would be made right or how we would know the righteousness of God, how that we would be made right with God? Are you now saying, are you contradicting the entirety of the Old Testament, Paul? And Paul expounds on that a little bit in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith for all who believe. Now, let me just unpack this because this is super important. What Paul Paul is not saying, God's righteousness is being revealed. God's righteousness is revealed through uh, creation. God's righteousness has been revealed through Jesus Christ. God's righteousness is revealed in so many ways. Paul here is not talking about God's righteousness as in his righteousness, but a righteousness equal to the righteousness of God. So he's not talking about the possessive case, this is God's righteousness, no. He's talking about a righteousness equal to the very righteousness of God is now being made available, that's what manifested means, it's being made known, and it's being made known apart from the law. In other words, there is another way to find a right standing. One that's not bound to performance of the law, but a wholly different way. Do you understand what I'm saying here? He's saying, guys, there's this righteousness, and it can be yours. I'm not talking about God's righteousness. We all know he's righteous. Paul's saying there is a righteousness that can be yours, and it comes apart from the law. What in the world? So how does this come to us, Paul? He says it right here. It is through faith. In Jesus for all. Well, how does this work? Well, because all are in sin, all have sinned and are doomed, so all can likewise be made right. Verse 24, Paul explains how this happens. So, so when he says, back it up here, uh, when he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there's no distinction, what is he referring to? It's not about being a Jew anymore, there's no more distinction. God has gotten rid of that whole system, there's no distinction, because we all know, we have all sinned, whether you're Jew or Gentile, and we all fall short, verse 24, and are justified. How? He shows us, let's see that prepositional phrase, by His grace, that's showing us the source, So, this is the source of it, as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ, and that's the means. So, he shows us the source of this happening is through grace, notice that phrase, as a gift, as a gift. This is a perfect season to be talking about this. Don't you love gifts? I love gifts, right? I love gifts. What is the proper response when you get a gift? Yeah, And if you're like me, man, I remember being a kid, I'd be like throwing the thing up and just tearing it apart. Gratitude and and absolute joy because I'm getting something good. Right? Can you imagine? I mean, that's and and let's face it, when you're a gift giver, how many gift givers are there out there? You People like to give gifts. Okay, I thought I had a bunch of grinches in this church. Okay, so when you give a gift, what's the best feeling? What's the best thing to see when that person's just like, wow, right? First of all, it's beautifully wrapped like this, right? But when they tear it open, they're just like, oh, I've been wanting this, right? I just, I, I, the kids are the best. I wanted this so badly, right? And doesn't that bring you joy? How would you feel, though, if you, got, if so, if you gave this gift and someone went, oh, wow, man, I, 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 can't, I can't take that? Or, okay, so let, let me... Can I just give you, here's my debit card, and then maybe you can take some money off of that? Or they, they receive it and say, oh, thanks. Okay, so um, so I'll be a nicer friend to you, or I'll wash your car, I'll hang out with you more kind of thing, right? I'll, I'll spend time with you now because this. How would you feel? Yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about. The only right response to a gift Is gratitude and joy. The only obligation we have to give God is joy. That's the obligation we have. Do you know why, though? So let's translate this to our faith. What Romans 3 says, we got our salvation as a gift. Do you know what what we're doing when we start feeling like, oh, you gave me salvation? Okay, so I'm gonna spend more time with you now. Okay, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be in the Word because I have to. I got this gift. What we're trying to do is get ourselves out of that debt. We are trying to remove ourselves from the obligation somehow, because that's what it is, right? That, oh, you gave me this expensive gift. I don't want to be in your, I don't want to be in owing to you. I don't want to be beholding to you. Now, we don't think of that in the terms of gifts, but that's what's going on. I don't want to have to owe you, and so I'm going to contribute to this. And that's what we do when we, we, we start relating to God other than a, a debt of joy. And so don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong, the Christian life translates to certain changes, but if it's not because, if it, if it, the only proper debt you're trying to pay off is a debt of joy. Okay, I'm going to unpack that a little bit later, but let's just see that in verse 24. By His grace, that's the source, and it's a gift, just Keep receiving the gifts. Don't you love people who love receiving gifts well? I got to tell this story, babe. I'm sorry I didn't clear it with you, but you'll be okay with it. So, years ago, <laughs> years ago, if she wasn't paying attention, she was paying attention now, right? Years ago, when we were living in the Midwest, I was pastoring, we were pastoring a small church, and, 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 and my wife got into quilting, and this woman who was a really good friend of our family wanted to bless my wife with this beautiful, um, uh, what was it called? Husqvarna. I'm getting that look. Oh, okay, sewing machine. And this was expensive. And my, and Laura's like, I I can't, uh, mm, I can't take, this is way too much. I said, honey, if you don't let Brenda bless you, this is not about you or the value. You, You are robbing her the joy of giving. And of course, at that point, she got it. And I was like, and can you put me into that flow somehow? You know. No, I like to get gifts from people who like to give gifts. And it's not because I'm materialistic. It's because I understand my Bible. And God loves to give gifts. How often do we see God talking about the giver of gifts? And, and, and if you can't receive gifts from God, it's maybe because you just feel like that, that's, that's building up your debt to Him. Yeah, it is. The only debt you have is joy. When it comes to God, I'm like, just bring it, man. I'll take all the gifts you have for me because He doesn't want anything in return other than my debt of joy of what He's given to me. And that's what Paul's saying here. Back to our text, verse 24. So, His gift, the grace is the source. It's like a gift. Here's the means of how that gift is acquired to us and made secure through the redemption that is in Christ. Now, here's the focus. Okay, all that was just building up. I want to get to the focus. And the focus is not in contradiction to what we just read, but it's a very stark contrast. But that should make the gift seem even more precious and amazing. Verse 25, whom God put forward, we're speaking of Jesus through His redemption, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Okay, propitiation, that's a word we don't typically use. Uh, it, it is common now to propitiate someone's anger, but it was often used in, in a Hellenistic Greek to appease the anger of the gods and to win their favor. So, Paul is using a term they were all very familiar with, to appease the anger and fury of the gods and to gain their favor. So, wait, what is Paul actually saying here? God put forward as a propitiation, Jesus, the phrase, by his blood, talking about his death. What? Wait a minute, I just thought we were talking about God's joy and all that. Yes, and that's absolutely true. Nothing of what I said is nullified. But now we have to face the brutal, horrifying reality of what sin has done. Sin has made us enemies of God, sin has ruined the whole situation, friends. Man, unless Jesus is your legal substitute, unless he is your king, you are not neutral with God. I want to say that carefully. We're not neutral with God. There's no moral neutral ground here. I'm going to show you some slides we looked at before. We have looked at these three weeks ago. Romans 5, we're his enemies. Right? That's why he had to reconcile us. Ephesians 2, we're by nature children of wrath. Oh, Colossians 1, you can't see it down there, but we're hostile towards God doing evil deeds. Yeah, you, God is angry because we're His enemies. We have chosen to be His enemies. God is angry because we are now children of wrath, and we're, doing, we're hostile in our minds towards God's, and the evil deeds only prove that. Friends, God is angry with our sin. You've probably heard that kind of thing before. Can I say this as well? If you're reading your Old Testament, you know this is true. God is also angry at sinners. Right? We do say that, you know, hate the sin but love the sinner. Absolutely true. God does that too. But God is angry at sinners who embrace their sin. Let's not be deceived here. God hates and is angry at sin. I'm going to unpack this in a little bit. I I want to build something up. He is angry at our sin and He's also angry at the sinner but let me read you some verses here. Isaiah 57, 16. I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. Okay? Psalm 103, 9. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. Notice every one of those verses, all three of those verses, and there's so many more. Make the case God's angry. But they also say, but he's not going to hold his anger forever. So if God was at one time angry, then, then, then God is angry. But notice every one of them says, but he's not going to be angry forever. Why? Because he's going to deal with his anger. He's going to deal with his anger when his son is propitiated to deal with it. Friends, I know this may be as a shock, but you want an angry God. You actually want an angry God. The problem is, I understand it, His anger is not arbitrary like ours, like yours. His anger is not sinful like mine or like yours. His anger is, does not just blow up, fall, go out of control like mine and yours. God's anger is a settled disposition of His holy character against sin and evil. Friends, you want an angry God. You do not want a God who is dispassionate in the face of evil. You do not want a God who shows cold indifference to the suffering in the world. You don't want a God who's just mildly disturbed by injustice. You want a God that gets angry and furious at the evil in this world. You want Him zealous, you want it to be personal, and you want fury. The problem is, the problem is, we just don't want that turned on us. When it comes to our uh, immaturities, when it comes to our personality quirks, when it comes to our uh, shortcomings. We want God to be cold. We want Him indifferent. We want Him to be chill. We want Him just to relax. But when we face evil, when we endure suffering, when we are dealt injustice, we want Him to show up. You see how confusing it could be to be God to us? <laughs> and we got to choose, friends. Do, do I want Him to be furious at my sin, or do I want Him to cast it away from Him? Do I want Him to exercise justice or give mercy Do I want Him to judge or to forgive? Thankfully, because of Jesus, we can have both. That's what the point of verse 25 and 26 is, right? But for that to happen, someone has to pay the price for your guilt, and someone has to pay for the blessings of you being proclaimed innocent. And so God sets forth his son to satisfy that righteous anger against sin. So that, friends, he can continue to be just in judging sin in the cosmic court of law. And he can still be justified in being gracious and kind and forgiving toward us because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Look, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 it says, look, the blood of bulls and goats could never do the job. The whole sacrificial system, the whole concept of sacrifice in the Old Testament, it could never do the job. It was always trust that one day there would be a sacrifice, one day there would be a substitute that can actually deal with this. And that substitute and that day came in Jesus. That's exactly Paul's point. Look at verse 26. So, back up uh, middle of verse 25, To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, so there had to be a propitiation. If God is going to be righteous, sin and evil and justice has to be condemned and judged or else God's not righteous. What kind of righteous judge lets murderers off? What kind of righteous judge lets child abusers go? He's got to be righteous. It has to be judged, and it was. Jesus propitiated God's righteous anger towards these sins. This was to show God's righteousness because, why? Why did this have to happen? In His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. What's He talking about? All the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, everything that came over. He was just passing it over. You you went through the process. Yes, I get that. You're putting trust in it. I haven't dealt with it yet in my fury and wrath. Passed over. One day there's going to be a sacrifice that takes it all. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time. Talking about Jesus' crucifixion. Why? So that He might be just, so He would be a righteous judge. And yet at the same time, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that He could judge sin and not compromise His holiness, but so that He could hug sinners and be justified in being kind, because Jesus was your substitute. Our perfect substitute, which leads us to our next text. Perfect in regards to what? So for that, go to Galatians chapter 3. It's just a couple books to the right. It's right after uh, 2 Corinthians. Galatians chapter 3. This is good. Let me read uh, verses 10 through 14. Again, the focus really is 13 and 14, but for, to build it up, you've got to understand the context. Verse 10 of Galatians chapter 3, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? How, Paul? There's that prepositional phrase by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curses everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that, he's restating what he just said, we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Okay, there's so much going on here. So, what's Paul doing? Paul is writing to a group of new Christians. I just talked about this. The gospel is spreading. Here it's spreading to uh, Galatia, modern-day Turkey, and here we have a church, mostly Gentiles, but they're being influenced by the Jews, as I said, and they're they're buying into the notion that they have to do certain things according to the Jewish law, certain traditions, to be accepted by God, not unlike the way we believe certain notions that we have to do certain things to be accepted by God, be super-involved in your church. Give regularly, give generously, give consistently, read your Bible and pray every day, share your faith, right? Those are positive things. Or um, not, not losing your temper anymore, right? Not grumbling, no longer judging people, not drinking anymore because it's become too important to you, right? By the way, these are all good things. They're all good things, but not a one of them. Is gonna make you righteous before God any more than wrapping Christmas gifts makes you a Christmas elf. But, but we do that. We do those kinds of things. God will accept me more, He'll love me more. I know it because I'm doing these things faithfully. In fact, listen, this is, so this is what's going on. This is, again, it's very different, but very the similar. And in fact, Paul says if that is the way you want to relate to God, If that's how you want to relate to God, you you stack up your good behaviors on some cosmic scale and say, I am righteous, I've done some good things. Then, if that's what you want to do, then you are actually under a curse. See, if, if you can't just take the gift and go, man, I just owe God a debt of joy that transforms me, if you can't do that and you want to somehow pay for that gift, you want to barter for that gift, I'm sorry. <laughs> I saw your faces go. There's nothing in here. It's an empty box. Okay. Um, if you want to live, if you, if you want to somehow pay God back, you're under a curse. Not just any general curse, but a specific curse that Paul is referring to here, and he's referring to the curse in Deuteronomy 27:28. You can write that down if you're a note taker. Now you'll recall in our series, the book of the twelve, I taught you. If you want to understand the minor prophets, right, Hosea to Malachi, and really, if you just want to understand all the prophets, minor or major, in in a lot of ways, if you want to understand the Old Testament, you got to understand what's going on in Deuteronomy 28, 27 and 28. That is the, the key chapter there. So what's going on? So, well, let me just read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 28, 27. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy basically means the second giving of the law. Here they are at the promised land, and they're just about to to, to go into the promised land. You remember the people that came out of Egypt? They died in the desert because of their disbelief in God, so God has to give the law again. And so as they come up to the promised land, he's like, okay, hold it, time out. Let's just make sure we're all on board. You want to be my covenant people? Yes. You're going to do these things? Yes. So this is what's going on, Deuteronomy 27, verse 9. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Shh, keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan... These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, and he lists off the tribes, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse the people. So what they're doing is effectively, as they're going into the promised land, Moses says, all right, half the people go on Mount Gerizim, half the people go on Mount Ebal, and you're going to read off the cursings and the blessings that come from your obedience. It It was an amazing day. And all he said, if you obey the Lord your God and all that He commands, these are all the blessings that are come on you. It's going to be amazing. If you disobey, here's the curses that will hunt you to the grave. It's going to be horrible. And if you read the entire Old Testament, now you know how, why it plays out the way it does. So Paul is directly, directly pulling from this narrative and saying, do you really want to go back to relating to God that way? Think about this. Do you really want to do that? And, and to emphasize the point, notice how Paul changes it. In Deuteronomy 27, 26, this is what it says. Curse be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, okay? Notice the way Paul translates it. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. He adds that in there, written in the book of the law, and to do them. As if Paul's trying to stress the point. Look, you want to go by the way of works and, and acceptance before God? then okay, but you have to do everything as if to emphasize the impossibility of this. And go back to Galatians. Paul actually says it, verse 11. Verse 11, now it it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Well, Paul, you sound pretty confident. How is it evident? Just just read the Old Testament, Paul's saying. It is clear. Nobody can do this. It is clear, it is evident, nobody is justified before God by the law. Why? Because the righteous, they live by faith. Friends, this doesn't mean that the law is no good. Let me be very clear here. I am not arguing that Christians can live however they want. The law, Paul says in Romans 7, is good and it's holy because the law is a window. And through that window, what do we see? We see the character and beauty of God. We see that He's pure and He's righteous and fair and just and compassionate and giving, right? The law is also a gate. It restrains evil. It tells us what needs to be uh, cursed, what what behaviors need to stop. It restrains evil. And the law is a map. It shows us this is how we should be living. This is how we should guide our lives. It's just the reality is the law doesn't save us. And so, Paul, the law condemns us. That's what Paul means. It's evident all through the Old Testament. No one's justified before God by their performance. Verse verse 13, 14 is the focus. Christ, the good news, He redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Look at that prepositional phrase. By becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us. You remember that from last week? He bought us back. He set us free. How? By becoming a curse. In other words, absorbing the curse, taking upon Himself the penalty of our failures. Why would Christ do that? Verse 14 answers the question. Verse 14 gives the purpose of verse 13, so that in Christ the blessings of Abraham come to us. And what's the blessings he's talking about? He's not talking about material wealth and all those things promised to Abraham. That's not what he says. Paul actually defines the blessings of Abraham right there in verse 14. He restates it so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He took your place. He was your legal substitute so that... The promised spirit, the, re, the, the animating power of God himself, the righteousness equal to the righteousness of God can be yours, right? Treasures in jars of clay. You know, I, 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 God, the, the righteousness of God and me, are you kidding me? No. That's what the Bible says, positionally. Now, there's a whole other issue about practically how are you living, but that's another sermon, Either it's that debt of joy or it's a debt of perfection. What do you want to do? I'll tell you what I want. I just want to be like, yes, give me gifts and let me be happy about it and let me be giving, owing you joy because there's no way else I can pay this back. So, friends, how does God, as we conclude, show both justice and mercy? How does God forgive our sins and punish our sins? How does God maintain His transcendent holiness and His so intimate lovingness? How does the righteous judge and the compassionate Father get both without sacrificing either? Jesus becoming the legal substitute in the cosmic court of law on our behalf. By living up to the law as the sinless, spotless, perfect son, he satisfies God's justice and holiness and perfection. But by voluntarily laying down his life and taking the punishment for any who would trust in his obedience rather than their own obedience, he secures mercy, forgiveness, and compassion. That's why the gospel message is the message the world needs. You see, we don't have to choose. I don't have to choose love or justice. We don't have to choose holiness or mercy. We don't have to choose righteousness or grace. Because of Jesus being your saving substitute, you can have both. So when you stand and see the eyes of that righteous judge, you also see the face of a loving Father because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. He is the gift. He's our legal substitute for Jesus who reconciled enemies into friends for Jesus who set slaves to be free, for Jesus who represents us in your court of law and gives us his righteousness. We thank you for that gift. We thank you for the gospel. Father, in a world that is, it seems like it's falling apart, we thank you that in the midst of it, you have planted your people who have the answer. Regardless of what happens in the world, our salvation is secure because of Jesus And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.